Isaiah chapter 12, the whole chapter. Just say in East Texas, the whole kit and caboodle. Isaiah 12, 1 through 6. The wells of salvation. The wells of salvation. Isaiah 12, read the text this morning. He says, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry, though your wrath was with me, your anger or your wrath turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust, I will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song. And God has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously, or He has done excellently. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy. O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Father, we pray you bless the preaching of your word this morning. It's all good news. whole chapter's good news. And I pray today that there will be some people in here today that could have joy in their heart in regards to their relationship with your Son, the Lord Jesus, and that the joy they have in their heart would be expressed through their lips in song, in testimony, in thanks. And all these things would just be the natural outcomes of the joy of which you have given unto your people. And Lord, I know there are people outside of Christ, outside of believers' baptism, they have no joy. They've never experienced joy, they've never felt joy, and they'll never have joy for all of eternity unless they look to Christ. And then their whole world will change forever. So may this be the day that someone would look to Christ. Pray this by your Spirit, in Christ's name, amen. Exodus chapter 15, you don't have to turn there, we'll end up there at some point this morning. But Exodus 15, you'll find yourself a song. And that song looks a lot like Isaiah chapter 12. In that song, you have a man by the name of Moses who wants to sing a song. He writes a song out, 21 verses long. In the first three verses, it sounds very much like Isaiah 12, about singing unto the Lord. Why is Moses singing, and why does Moses encourage all the congregation to sing? Well, because God saved them. God delivered them. 
They were in bondage. They were in captivity. They were under a cruel taskmaster. And God, by His sovereign, omnipotent hand, moved them out of Egypt, crossed across the sea on dry ground, and then took and brought judgment upon all of their enemies, and they were effectually delivered from Egypt. And the result of this deliverance is... Let's sing, let's worship, and let's praise God. Why? Because he has cast the rider and the horse into the sea. We've been delivered victoriously by Christ, and they sang. Yes, and I would tell you in this text, there is one greater than Moses who's come to deliver his people. And it's only fitting. I don't know where the church has missed this. But it's only fitting that people who have been redeemed by the Lord ought to sing. They ought to have joy. They ought to rejoice. I'm thinking that if you don't have the ability to sing or the desire to sing, you don't have the expression to give thanks to the Lord, I'm thinking you don't know Him. And you don't know what you've been delivered from because if you understood your calamity and what God has done through His Son, how could you not sing? If you want something from the New Testament to tie it together, then so be it. Romans 15 says what? For whatever was written in former times, Isaiah, Moses, book of the five first books of the Old Testament, whatever's written in former times... It was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may, with one voice, the whole church, with one voice, may glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the effects of salvation. Unity of praise for deliverance through His Son. Genuine conversion is the foundation of joyful praise. Well, that went over like a lead balloon. Half of you wasn't even listening and nobody said amen. I don't understand. I really don't get it. You cannot understand these theological truths and grasp what's being said in these types of texts without some expression of thanksgiving. It's impossible unless there's something wrong like you're holding sin in your heart or something because how can you not have joy over what you've been delivered from unless you're still in bondage? Verse 1, substitution. Now, understand Exodus 15 is the backdrop, but we also have another backdrop. If you want Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, to be condensed down to one verse, praise the Lord, we have it. Here is Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, in one verse by Isaiah. Let me shorten this thing down. You remember, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, the robe of his temple, the train of his robe filled the temple. He had the seraphims, six wings, covering their eyes, covering their feet, and with two they're flying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You have this scene of the holiness and the purity of Almighty God, and Isaiah beholds this great scene, and the only thing he can conclude from the holiness of God is, woe is me. Let judgment come, because I'm not holy. He's holy. I'm not. I deserve judgment. 
judgment. And then you get this altar, and you get this thing out of the altar and placed upon his lips and purges and singes him and purifies him and cleanses him. And through the result of this, you have the, the Trinity saying, Who whom will go for us? Whom shall we send? And Isaiah's like, hey, I, I'll sign up. I got a new heart. I got a right spirit. My eyes have seen Christ. And wherever you want me to go, send me. This is my testimony, Isaiah says. Now take that testimony and let's shrink it down. Verse 1. I will give thanks to you, O Lord. Why? Why is Isaiah going to give thanks to the Lord? Here's why. Your wrath was on me. I deserved your wrath. And your wrath is directed at me, to me, for me. And it's what I justly deserve. And then all of a sudden, there came a day that your wrath was diverted. The wrath was there, and the wrath was gone. This is what happened. And all of a sudden, your anger with me ceased, and all comfort was applied. Anybody? Anybody? Anybody in the room? Anybody listening? Anybody awake? Do you remember this day? Do you remember that God was angry with you? Do you remember your sin? Do you remember the holiness of God? Do you remember that all of heaven would rejoice if you would have been thrown into hell? And then all of a sudden, all that was gone, and all of a sudden comfort came by the Spirit of the living God, and you had peace with God. And the first line of my text says, You will say, in that day. What day? What day? In that day. And if you look over in verse 3, you will say, in that day. What day? Back up to Isaiah 11, verse 10. In that day. There it is again. What day? In that day. In chapter 11, you get some... Definition and help. The root of Jesse. Ah, now I know what we're talking about. There's going to be a root of Jesse. I think we can trace this line to Christ. In that day, the root of Jesse, he's going to stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place, dude, his resting place is glorious. In that day, verse 11, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria and Egypt, Pathros and Cush and Elam, from Shinar to Hamath and from the coastlands of the sea. Throughout the whole globe, he'll extend his hand. This root of Jesse is going to come in that day. For Isaiah, it's a future day. For us, it's a day of history, but it's a day that was fixed by the sovereign counsels of Almighty God. And in the fullness of time, on that day, God sent forth His Son. I will give thanks. Thanksgiving, quibble if you will, thanksgiving springs from a change in the relationship between God and man. If you don't know how to give thanks, it's probably because you don't understand God nor the plight of your sin. But to be fully pardoned, how can you not express thanks in words and deeds in your life? How can we not give thanks to the greatest deliverance that will ever be experienced? Now, as I think about verse 1, there's some implications that are here for us. 
the sinner in this room, listening on the internet, wherever the sinner may be, the sinner is in a very dangerous position because they're in line of the wrath of God, directly under the wrath of God. And they will be consumed by His wrath unless something is done, unless there's a turning, a change. Now, understand this carefully. God's wrath is not magically turned into love. It is not that we have to erase God's wrath in order for love to come, but God is eternally wrathful and eternally loving at the same time because those two things are part of what it takes to be God. His wrath is not erased by some mystical thing and then changed into comfort. It doesn't work that way. You say, why? Because if it did, God wouldn't be holy and sin would never be punished. Sin must be punished. Or you don't have a just God. You don't even have a God. If sin's not punished, sin must be punished. The Bible says, the wages of sin is death. Somebody must die. Somebody has to lose their life. God's wrath is real and death is the penalty. The wrath must fall on the guilty. Who's guilty? I'm guilty. You're guilty. Everybody in here is guilty. Wrath must fall upon us. Wrath must fall on the guilty. In order for wrath to be removed from me or from you, it must be applied to a substitute who's in our place. You understand the magnitude of this? Every ounce of wrath that is applied to me gets diverted, not erased. It just gets applied to another. Christ in your stead. Christ in your place. Everything diverted to Him, and He absorbs that wrath under the justice of God in order that the balm of Gilead, comfort, can be applied this man is Christ, the God-man, who is alone able to pay the debt. God's anger is certainly turned, but it's turned from the sinner to Christ. Now, I suppose I should have a lot of illustrations, and I don't. But I don't. how can we understand this great truth and not have more of a thankful heart for what Christ has did in our lives? place. Why would the church sleep? Why would the church be plateaued? Why would the church be stagnant? Why would the church exist on Sunday mornings to just try to make it to 12 o'clock or we can get out of here? It must be because you don't understand what Christ has done. Because if you understood what he did, you would be eternally grateful You'd be eternally thankful. The reality, even for my life, in some 50 years of being a Christian is, is the thanksgiving keeps going up, not down. Because the more I understand Him, the more thankful I am for Him. The more theology I learn, the bigger my view gets of my Savior, and I understand more and more what has accomplished on the cross. And I'm just like, dude, I want the whole world to stop and put their eyes on Christ and worship Him because He is worthy.
trustworthy. J. Alec Mortier says, This plight cannot be remedied unless the wrath is somehow allayed. What the Bible calls propitiation, reconciliation, listen, is not our willingness to have God. Reconciliation is not our willingness to have God, but God's willingness to have us. Number two, strength and song, verse two. That's Isaiah's testimony, substitution, verse one. Verse two, strength and song. Look at the text again. You see this word, behold. God is my salvation. You look at the last line of verse 2, it says he, the he is God, so you can say God has become my salvation. God is my salvation, God has become my salvation. In between these two declarations of his position about God, we find four things sandwiched between them that is the reality of all Christians. God is my salvation. God has become my salvation. The reality of that is four things. I trust him. I have no fear. I am strengthened and I have a song in my heart. That's the reality of every born-again believer. I trust him and him alone. I have no fear of death because I am right with God in Christ. I'm going to heaven. I am strengthened for the day no matter what may come because Christ dwells within me and the Spirit enables me. And I know this, I've got something worth singing about. This is the position of the believer. This word here in verse 2, behold, first word, behold. This word calls attention to the reality That this angry, wrathful God is our Savior. Would you look at that? This God who had wrath, He's the one who's going to save me. That God who had wrath towards me is my Savior. He's become my Savior. Wow! How in the world did that happen? History. Isaiah 6, verse 7 and 8, historically these things have happened. You look back, just glance back at the text very briefly in Isaiah 6. This is how it happened. In Isaiah 6, verse 7, and he touched my mouth and said, oh, there's the word, behold, hello Isaiah, would you look at this? This is touch your lips and your guilt is removed. Isaiah, your sin has been atoned for. Marvel of marvels, mystery of mysteries. My sin is no more. I still don't think you're getting it. Calvin said it this way. It's a double. Well, Calvin didn't say this, but he's going to say something in a minute when I quote it. But it's a double future. Look at this text. You know what's coming? You know what's coming? Isaiah 53. It's coming. You know what's coming after Isaiah 53? Galatians in the fullness of time. This is all coming. And that day it's going to happen. You can bank on it. And, then, and Calvin says something like this. The brightness of God's countenance, which had been hidden for a time, shines forth so it's, it's like, Calvin says it like this, it's so real that you could like point your finger to it. Behold, it's right there. 
You don't understand that? And go visit John the Baptist. <laughs> Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There he is. There he is. Look at him. Behold. And this is what he's saying here. Behold, this God who has had wrath towards me, he is my Savior. I have four characteristics, as I've already noted, that become true of me. I trust Christ above everything. Philosophy, wit, wisdom, human stuff, flesh, it's Christ. No fear, no fear. Let me die today and I'll be present with the Lord. Take my life and I'm going home. What fear should there be of man? There's no fear of man here. Strength, enablement, power, and song. You don't know the same story. I say the same story all the time, but it's still true. I'm the worst singer in the whole church. But you ain't going to outsing me. You're not going to sing louder than me. I got a loud voice. You say, yeah, but you're distracting. Get over it. I love Christ because he has redeemed me. He's forgiven me. And I give him thanks by singing rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Not by water, but by blood. You have atoned for my sin. Sing. Similar response in the Exodus. I told you we'd allude to it. In Exodus 15 and verse 2, it says, The Lord is my strength. The Lord is my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise Him, and He is my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The position of Moses is the position of Isaiah and the position of the entire New Testament, and it ought to be the position of the church. A man who does not respond with a heart of thanksgiving has failed to understand his sin or he has failed to misunderstand the grace of God or both, or both. God has become my salvation, wonder of wonders. The God who was under no obligation to anything for me. He had no obligation whatsoever. And he moved of his own free will and saved me. Astounding. J. Alec Motyer, one more time, or maybe two more times, but this stresses the element of divine decision as well as divine action without which no sinner is ever saved. Unless God do something, you're eternally sunk. So when he does something, you're like, Praise be his name. Because if you wouldn't have found me, in no way I would have ever found you. What is meant here by the prophet? What's he mean here? In eternity, God foreordained the salvation of his people. In time, God the Son procured that salvation by his willing death on the cross. In time, once again, God applies salvation to elect individuals by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, God foreknew. Yes, God predestined. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God elects. Yes, God can do all of those things. But in time and history, I repent. I believe. I embrace Him by faith. I trust Him as my Savior. All these things are true at the same time. 
You can't get saved without repentance. You can't get saved without faith. These things are real and they happen. And we break and we weep and we cry and we lay our sins before the Lord and say, have mercy upon us. These things are real. It happens throughout the scripture. And in the backdrop, God says, yes, I have ordained these things to take place. What if God is not your salvation? What if he's not? Well, you can only trust in yourself. That's all you got. If God's not your Savior, just trust yourself. Chance, happenstance, buena suerte, good luck. Hope it works out. You live in fear every day. Fear of death, fear of the lack of fulfillment, fear of whatever it is, fearing things that you don't even know what you're fearing. It's the only way you can live. You have no strength. God's not your Savior. You have no strength. So you just drink alcohol. You pull up yourself by your own bootstraps by sheer willpower. You're religious to appease your conscience, prideful in your positions. And you basically just get pushed whichever way the wind blows. That's all you do. Whatever the pressure is, just pushes you that way. You have no strength. Like a leaf in a West Texas wind. Just blowing here and blowing there with no stability. One day here, one day there, one day over there. That's your life. You have no Savior. And then you have this issue of songs. Pray tell me, if God's not your Savior, what do you sing? I suppose... You would be diverted to the mindless, numbing country music station, right? You come up with great theology there. These boots are made for walking. I got drunk the day my mama got out of prison. That's rich stuff, isn't it? I guess that's what we're saying. I mean, most of the country music writers at least made it through first grade. You sing pop. You sing hip-hop. You sing goofy songs that have no meaning. A heart without content sings songs without content, and they love them because they have no content just like them. But in truth, there's nothing that they have to sing about. But the church is not so. We have something to sing about, something that's rich, someone that's deep, someone that's wide, someone that's real. And we can write music for the rest of eternity and never write it enough to express the greatness of our God who is at wrath with us but turned it away, placed it on His Son in order that we could be adopted into His family. Oh, let the world sing and sing and sing. Thirdly, Salvation's Wells, verse 3 and 4. Now, the first two verses were singular. I, my, me, I, my, me. Now in verse 3, it's plural. Now the you in the text is plural. Now we're going to talk about the congregation. Salvation's wells. With joy, you, plural, you're going to draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call on His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, proclaim that he, His name is exalted. What happened to Isaiah individually in conversion 
is the norm for the whole church. The singular is true in the plural. It's not like Isaiah is saved one way and the people at By the Word Baptist Church are saved another way. No, no, no. This singular is now plural and this is what salvation looks like for anyone that's saved. Conversion produces a heart of joy. This heart of joy causes us to go to the well. And we keep going to the well, and we keep going to the well, and we have a little bucket, and we get a bigger bucket, and we get a bigger bucket, and the longer we draw to the well, somewhere in the process we find out there ain't no bottom. Ain't no bottom. What's in this well? It's wells of salvation. They say, wells is plural, salvation is singular. What are you talking about? There's lots of wells in salvation. There's wells of comfort. I've been drawing comfort out of this well half my life. There's wells of courage. In those days when you're intimidated and scared and you draw up courage out of the well of salvation. There's wells of love. In those days when I don't think nobody loves me, I just draw from this well. And in this well, I find a Savior who laid down His life for me. I just keep drawing out of that well, and the bucket keeps running over. There's wells of forgiveness here. I just keep coming to the wells of salvation and saying, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. And it's like it never runs out. He just keeps forgiving and forgiving and forgiving because that's just the kind of God He is. There's wells of trust, there's wells of fearlessness, there's wells of strength, there's wells of song, all of these things, wells of encouragement, and there's a well of truth in this book. Just keep drawing from it. And I would also say when it comes to wells, we want to think of water. Water is symbolic of salvation, a lot of scriptures. Take, for example, Isaiah 41, 17, when the poor and needy Seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Or what about the New Testament? (laughs) What a commentary on the Exodus. 1 Corinthians 10.4. And they all drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. And then John 4, 14, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water I give him is going to become to him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. This is the well that we're drawing from. Or think about John seven thirty seven. On that day, on that great feast day, he stood up and he cried out. He cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me, and out of his belly, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. You plateaued, you're going down, you're just going through the rhythms of religion, you got no joy, you got no worship, just humdrum, go through the motions, you're not drinking from the right well. Something is wrong with your heart. There's not something wrong with this book, and there's not something wrong with this God. If you're not being revived, it's on you for not drinking from this well. That's what the woman of Samaria said. Give me this water. Give me this water. I'm tired of status quo. I want to be in love with Christ. I want to thank Him, praise Him, and worship Him. 
is the will of God, we should rejoice before him and rejoice in him. Deuteronomy 26, 11. Be joyful. It's his will for us to be joyful in his house of prayer. Isaiah 56, 7. And it is his will for us to have joy, to keep his feast with gladness. Acts 2, 46. And the community's response is found in verse 4 under four imperatives. Four commands are set forth in verse 4 to show the response that God has commanded you to have in regards to his mercy in saving your soul. Four commands, they're clear, they're easy. You don't have to go to seminary to figure this out. Number one, give thanks. It's a command, not a suggestion. If you're not giving thanks to him on a regular basis for what he's done, that's because you're in sin. God commanded and you said, I'm not giving you thanks because my life's more important than what your word says. Number two, you're commanded to call on his name. What God is himself, that's who he is, is who we're calling on. It shows our dependence upon him. We call him because we need. We call him because we're not sufficient in and of ourselves. We call because we need rescue. We need guidance. We need deliverance. All of those things we call on his name, and we're commanded to. Stop calling on horizontal things. Call upon the God of heaven. Thirdly, we are to make known his deeds. The list is endless. When is the last time you've ever made known anything about what God did? Now, look, I, I don't know. We have to say this around here for whatever reason. I'm not talking about standing on the street corner and preaching. I'm not talking about getting on a box in the middle of somewhere and preaching. I'm just talking about life. I'm talking about Sandy Beach gas station. I'm talking about Walmart. I'm talking about your job. I'm talking about your life wherever you are. When is the last time you made known something of the deeds of God? We are commanded to make his deeds known. You say, well, what would I say? I don't know. You might say something like this. You know, I've never told you this, but one day I realized that God was angry with me. What? Yeah, God was angry with me. Why was God angry with you? Because I'm a sinner? Right there, they don't even know how to respond. All you've done is told the truth. And you say, but then it was changed and he comforted me. How did that happen? Well, you see, he sent his son to substitute my place. This is the greatest deed I know. I just want to tell you about it. We could go on and on forever. Fourthly, we're commanded to make them remember. In the text here in verse 4, the ESV says proclaim. The word there is proclaim. The Hebrew word there is remember. Remember that his name is exalted. Perhaps the ESV was shooting at this. The way we remember is by proclaiming these truths. Make them remember. Is the task of the church to cause men to remember that his name is is exalted. If we as a body, by the word Baptist Church, do not make known the exalted name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to do it? Joe Biden? Who's going to do it? The mayor of Azel? Who's going to do it? Your school teachers? Who's going to do it? Your boss on your job? Who is going to make the name of Christ exalted and great if the church of By the Word Baptist doesn't do it? Who's going to do it in your home? 
Who's going to do it in your hobby? Who's going to do it at your work? Why has the church grown silent about the name of Christ when we have the ability to talk about everything else under the sun? Should we not talk about Christ? Should we not promote His glory? Should we not come to the table of a sin-filled, morally depraved world and say, I have light? Those who receive favor ought to be the most expressive in praise. P.S. and side note, I don't think you have to be loud to accomplish that. I'm just loud. Everybody's different. You can still make his name exalted quietly, but you can be clear. Those who receive favor ought to be the most expressive in praise. The gospel church is Zion. Christ is Zion's king. Those that have a place and a name in the church should lay, them, lay out themselves to diffuse the knowledge of Christ and bring many to him. Matthew Henry. Number four, verse five. Sing, verse five, sing praises to the Lord. Now why in the world would we do that? Well, because he's done excellently, gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. The motive of songs, a praise. What's the motive here? What God has done in saving must bring us to sing. Look, what am I trying? I'm trying to communicate this text to you. I don't understand church people, and whether I understand or not doesn't matter. I'm just saying I don't understand. How you can have a song like, I'm sitting on the front row, I don't know who's singing, I'm not looking at you, but if, if, you, if it's you and the shoe fits, then wear it. But I'm sitting on the front row, and I'm like, how can you not lift your voice and sing Rock of Ages? How can you not do that? How, how can you, it's like, I wish Jeff would hurry up. This song has how many stanzas? How can that be your position after what God has done, and then we're commanded to sing? It's just a, like a, the, 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 the post uh, uh, proclamation of Christianity is song. It's like, if you don't have a heart to sing, at least ask yourself, what's wrong with my heart? It's, it's like a goofball Church of Christ people down here. We can't have musical instruments and we can't do this, and they get in their car and turn on their country music and sing it all the way home. Something wrong. How can you roll down your window, crank up your radio to a bunch of smut, and come into the church and just go ho-hum and not join along? There's something wrong with the heart, because when the heart's been chased, it has to sing. Is anybody getting this? A man with no heart to sing may be a man who still has an old heart. And then mission's extent is here as well to the church, so this plural use of the you. Let this be made known. Shows us that it's a thing that's worthy to be known. Because God is excellent, it must be made known. Oh yeah, and one of my favorite texts in the Bible says the same thing. Psalm 96, right? Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. 
His marvelous works among all the peoples. Why in the world should we do that? For great is the Lord. He's greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Psalm 96, 1 through 4. Now, lastly, point number five, if you're keeping count. She is the church. Now, you see here, shout and sing for joy. And then you see, oh, inhabitant. I know you can't see it, but inhabitant is feminine. Everything in this text is masculine until I get to that word, inhabitant. Now it's feminine. Tell me why you went from masculine for five verses and switched to feminine on the last verse. For great in your midst, and the your is feminine. Twice feminine. Great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Is that not interesting? Why in the world is it all masculine until the last verse and it becomes feminine? There's got to be a reason. Isaiah's not a quack. He's under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. He must be doing something here. Ah, I think I found it. You see, in that day, in that day that's the fullness of time when Christ comes, Christ is the groom. A groom has a, a bride. She is beautiful. So when we get to verse 6, she, the church, is Zion. The inhabitants get two commands here. Shout because of joy. Sing because of joy. Zion herself, personified as an exultant woman, the people of God in their oneness, giving all praise to God. The reason why the church shouts and sings is because what? The one who dwells in her midst is great. The Holy One of Israel dwells with His bride. And to close, if you look at Exodus 15, go back to Moses, deliverance from Egypt, and you look in Exodus 15, We'll do the beginning and the end. We'll skip the content. In Exodus 15, this is what you'll find. Verse 1 through 3, Moses and the people of Israel sang. They sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord. Why? He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength. The Lord is my song. He's become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My Father's God. I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Very, very similar. You go all the way to the end of the song of Moses, and you get to verse 20, and you'll find something very interesting. After all the congregation praises and sings because of what God has done in delivering them, then Miriam, feminine, Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, you know what she did? She took a tambourine in her hand. And all the women went out with her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is what God has done. This is what God has commanded us to do. And here we are, pictured as the bride of Christ. And all of those who are part of this bride, let the church say amen.
And in conclusion, I would say to the lost people this morning, misery loves company. And those without Christ will have no difficulty finding misery in every walk of life. The way of the sinner is hard. And it's a road filled with disappointments. It's a road filled with disaster, lack of fulfillment, unending vices, wasted days and wasted nights, as some song has said. And in the end, just forgotten. A man dies this week in Illinois, a cattle rancher, millions of dollars. No friends, no church. Millions of dollars and lots of stuff, lots of cows. And have a funeral, who's going to come? No pastor, no church, no friends. A wife and a few people that work for him gather to cremate him, throw out his ashes, and remember him no more. But he had millions, and that's the route of those who refuse to embrace Christ by faith. It's a terrible way to be. And in hell, all of the foolishness that you did will be a weight that is unable to be borne. But on the other hand, praise befits the people of God. There are people who have been forgiven, redeemed, adopted, and have the joy of the Lord planted deep in their heart. They have unending faith. They have no fear of death strength for every obstacle that comes their way, and they have someone in their heart worth singing about. Yes, the gospel church, Zion, is full of praise and exaltation of the King of Kings. Father in heaven, thank you for a text that has been a great joy to me. I pray by the Holy Spirit that it would be a great joy for someone else that they would have this joy deep within their heart, drawing deep from the wells of salvation, and they would offer up words of praise in all they do. Lord, I can't get Fernando out of my mind in that kitchen early in the morning cooking for all these people, singing at the top of his lungs, wore out, exhausted, singing and cooking. That's just what Christians do. Thank you for men like Fernando. Lord, I pray there be many that make up this church of By the Word Baptist Church. And pray these things by your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.